All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is uh, the third part of transhumanism, and uh, it is episode three hundred and forty-one. Jason Lindgren is with me, of course, and Wayne McCroy is back. Just so you know, Jason and I opened up the first part of the transhuman run, this trilogy. Wayne jumped in on part two, and Wayne will close out with us here on part three. Welcome, Jason. And good late morning. Yeah, we're starting a little late. I've been kind of up against it here, taking care of mom. There's no help from the medical community. It's gotten beyond ridiculous. I've just taken over everything. You step up where you got to step up. Anyhow, welcome, Wayne. Good to be back here, gentlemen. Any news on your end? Anything new? I mean, you've got a new situation, but anything you want to put out there? Uh, right now, just going to be posting some more things on my Rockfin channel for the time being, and uh, we'll go from there. Working on a fourth book and got a couple other projects lined up, but uh, you know, nothing major to announce right at the moment. All right. The big deal, the reason we've done a trilogy here is because transhumanism, regardless of how much you think has been implemented, is all about the death system, the death-based systems that I've been talking about, always joking about corpse orations. That's really not a joke or a speaking corpse. Um, Michael Hoffman's book, The Twilight Language, this is one of the reasons, of all the things I have read, I can't think of another one that puts the death-based system firmly where it belongs. Um, and this is a big deal. And while I differ from where Mr. Hoffman considers death in a lot of these events, everything else is so useful that I don't care. I won't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. As we get into transhumanism, at the base of it, if you use a simple alchemical principle that anything that's in this creation, mostly anything, can be broken down to body, spirit, and soul, all these man-made things that are without life lack, I think, two-thirds. Maybe someday we'll get an alchemist that knows more than I do, but they certainly do not have the breath of life or other things. Anyhow, there's all that, Jason. All right, let's pick back up here. We are continuing in 2014, and Nick Bostrom publishes Super Intelligence, Paths, Dangers, Strategies, Positing AI as the Number One Existential Threat to Humanity. The blurb for the book says, Super Intelligence asks the questions, what happens when machines surpass humans in general intelligence? Will artificial agents save or destroy us? Nick Bostrom lays the foundation for understanding the future of humanity and intelligent life. The human brain has some capabilities that the brains of other animals lack. It is to these distinctive capabilities that our species owes its dominant position. If machine brains surpassed human brains in general intelligence, then this new superintelligence could become extremely powerful, possibly beyond our control. As the fate of the gorillas now depends more on humans than on the species itself, so would the fate of humankind depend on the actions of the machine superintelligence. But we have one advantage. We get to make the first move. Will it be possible to construct a seed artificial intelligence to engineer initial conditions so as to make an intelligence explosion survivable? How could one achieve a controlled detonation? Oh, I see what they did there. Yeah. You know, this starts to bring to mind uh, all the old worldwide flood myths and these other things. And it starts to make you consider uh, at the end of each age, which is I'm reasonably sure where we are or getting there, uh, is there a reset of some kind? And is it for the reasons we're facing? Everything's getting out of hand. These are hard things to know. But to get back to the AI as the number one existential threat, here's how I view it. It gives presumably living men and women, non-human abilities. And I'll say it again, go look at the law of large numbers and the wisdom of the crowd. This would be below preschool levels of what is possible with supercomputers that can do a trillion processes a second and an unlimited data set. And if you read up on these things, you will see that the larger the data set, as in wisdom of the crowd, I can get 100 people, how many gumballs in this mason jar? And they'll be within 10, 20%. By the time I get to 1,000, I'm right within 5%. And when I clear whatever that threshold number is, I'm within 1% or 2% 
of the actual amount of gumballs. And this is such a infantile low level of what true data processing gives. In short, it gives living men and women the abilities that they shouldn't have. And it's provided by a thing that has no life. What would you add, Wayne? What I would like to add to this is despite the capabilities of these artificial intelligences and these major computers, um, the thing is, it's lacking something that uh, a human being has, or you know, some human beings have, we should say, and that's wisdom. Uh, it's it's not just uh, a factor of how many processes per second can your your brain do, or uh, how much knowledge can you hold, how much memory do you have, uh, what kind of uh, storage banks you have access to, that kind of thing. Uh, something that this artificial intelligence would lack would be the wisdom to be able to uh, wield this knowledge in a useful way. Uh, so that being said, it's something that is going to require um, some extra thought process on behalf of uh, these programmers for this machine when they uh, decide to try to make these artificial intelligences capable of what would be comparable to human thought or human capacities or, or beyond human capacities. So. That being the case, these machines, they, they lack something that is fundamental to the human being. And like I said, that would be equated to what we would call wisdom. Uh, these things do not have the capacity to learn wisdom. It's not really a learned thing, um, per se. It's, it's something that is, it, it pertains to spirit. And uh, we've talked about this before. These machines, they lack that spirit aspect to it. All right. Before I let Jason close out, I will refer to work that Jason and I did way back. I don't remember which episode, Jason. I want to say AI, but we I found research that was so compelling claiming that Vegas, Las Vegas, became the kind of corporate money-making Sin City powerhouse that it is using the law of large numbers and the wisdom of the crowd, large numbers law being primarily. But think about Vegas alone. Now everything is computerized. These one-armed bandits and everything else they got going are data collection machines. In other words, they probably know more as an example about addiction, think about it, from the data they collect. And then that information could be put into AI or who knows, marketing, branding, um, because they know to a 98, 99% certainty what is likely to addict 50, 60, 70% of living men and women that are exposed to it. But Jason, do you recall where we covered that? Oh, no, I don't think I do. I think uh, Rose will know. If anyone wants to get back to that episode, just email us because Rose knows it all. Now, here's the thing. This was 2014 that he was saying these kinds of things. Did they do anything about it? Since then, all this D-Wave stuff has gotten out of control and, and goodness knows what's going on behind the scenes. I know Google is going nuts pioneering this technology and quite a few other companies are as well. You and I have a mutual friend that's about as technical hacker knowledgeable as anyone you can meet. And I asked him point blank last night, have you ever seen a quantum computing system? And if you have, does it work in the way we're told? And he said, I have seen them. He claims that they are crazy fast. He says he doesn't necessarily expect except the, the quantum entanglement idea, which is where I start to get lost um, and how it's working. And he further pointed out what I pointed out. If these things, if you can make them, then over time, it becomes easier to make them and the price comes down. So I guess we could ask, why doesn't every major corporation in the world have equivalent to a D-Wave or whatever they're calling a quantum computer at this point? Continuing in 2014, Google acquires DeepMind Technologies to merge with its Google Brain Project in its quest to solve intelligence. From their website, when we started DeepMind in 2010, there was far less interest in the field of AI than there is today. To accelerate the field, we took an interdisciplinary approach, bringing together new ideas and advances in machine learning, neuroscience, engineering, mathematics, simulation, and computing infrastructure, along with new ways of organizing scientific endeavor. We achieved early success in computer games, which researchers often use to test AI. One of our programs learned to play 49 different Atari games from scratch, just from seeing the pixels and score on the screen. Our AlphaGo program was also the first to beat a professional Go player, a feat described as a decade ahead of its time. 
Now, I know darn well where we covered this. This was in the big AI episode where I read the first two big major tomes that were published with people who had insider access to the boards from Silicon Valley to Google to China. Uh, Just to quickly refresh, the idea was, hey, man, we got these computers, got to beat checkers. We beat checkers. Everybody remembers, got to beat a chess master. Think it was Kasparov. Um, Then they kept going until they got to go. They couldn't beat the game Go for, I forget how long it was. And then finally said, someone said, maybe human beings are the problem. Remove all human interaction and tell the AI it can create its own AI to solve individual problems. They cracked it in something like 72 hours. But let's get back around to some of the points here. Um, They started this in 2010 is the claim. I'm guessing it's earlier, but just think it has not been with us that long. And each year, the exponential learning and data collection is jumping and jumping. But there is a salient point made with regard to computer games. They openly confess that we're using computer games to collect data and refine what we're about with AI. Um, But here's a thing that I'm witnessing in the real world. Right now, where I live in Rhode Island, if you want to get a plumber, and it's the same plumber you've been using for 20 years, you might wait three weeks to a month. And when they finally get here and you ask what's the problem, they will tell you they can't hire anyone because the kids these days don't want to work. And I have heard this from now a good five or six service provided things like plumbers, carpenters, and other people who, even the lawnmower guy. There's a lawnmower guy who has a robust, there's a word for you, business um, doing lawns. He makes a great living. His problem is he can't get anyone to come work with him. And he attributes it, all these people attribute it to the younger generation just wanting to sit around and play video games. Um, I don't know if you guys have, have seen this, but where I am, getting anyone out to your house now is getting to be a waiting game. Oh yeah, that's definitely prevalent everywhere at this point, and it's it's all facets of business, all types of businesses. Um, I think we had uh, discussed that a little bit um, the other night on our Secrets of Saturn uh, stream that we did, Jason. Uh, whereas you know this this is a common thing these days; it's a common occurrence. It's hard finding help anywhere because it's true. This uh, generation, uh, and especially with all the events of the past year that have kind of uh, Um, held this thing up and made it more feasible. They don't want to have to have a regular type job like that. And uh, so that being the case, it it is hard to get any kind of services like this now. And and that's the problem. I mean, a lot of these business owners, they're going it alone now. Like they they don't have uh, much help uh, to back them up. So like you were saying before, like the gentleman that does uh, the lawns and stuff like that, well, if, if he's not able to find anybody who's willing to do the job, even though I'm sure he's probably paying decent to do so, uh, then all the work falls on him, doesn't it? And he could only stretch himself so thin. So that becomes a problem for many of these businesses. And that's why a lot of them uh, will buckle under. But uh, just getting back to what we're talking about here with uh, the AI end of it, this whole AlphaGo thing, this was a big deal, as I recall, because, uh, you know, it, it just the level of uh, intelligence there that has to be able to work ahead and see these different uh, combinations and stuff like that. It's astronomical, the amount of calculations this would have to do in order to be able to uh, counter all these different moves and be able to to beat a human player. Uh, so they use this kind of stuff. They use a lot of these algorithms and, and programs and stuff uh, from game theory, okay? And that, that, that plays a huge part into everything with AI. Much of it is based upon game theory logistics. So that being the case, uh, these computers, they could do these trillions of calculations per second or whatever it is that they're claiming and uh, be able to be several steps ahead of a human being because we just don't process the information quite as fast. And that that's a definite advantage for AI here. Uh, so that being the case, yeah, this was uh, actually something that was a decade ahead of its time, as he claims here. Because uh, that was a huge jump by allowing the uh, AI to play against itself and figure out strategies. Well, it could do that much faster than playing against a human player. See, so that being the case, this is how uh, these simulations and stuff they run work and why they have such a great deal of accuracy uh, with their models that they produce. And that's why they can predict things with like a 98% certainty because the computer could race ahead and graph out all these different possibilities and probabilities 
in a fraction of the time it would take to monitor in real time. So uh, with enough data points, they could predict much of, uh, you know, results of any kind of a program or something they want to run with such a great deal of accuracy that it's it's astounding. It, it's almost like you've equated before to like almost having a time machine uh, to be able to peer into the future and see what's going to happen. And if you do this, what will happen? And that, that's kind of the, the power they're wielding with this AI. But uh, like I said, it does lack the human element. And that's one of the problems with it. This is why it will always need a human being to oversee the, the data and uh, oversee the, uh, the use of the algorithms and stuff like that, because it lacks the wisdom to properly guide it. And I know they're working on uh, models of general intelligence and stuff to try and make this thing uh, quote unquote sentient or, or give it a human type uh, capacity to reason and uh, give it ethical values and stuff like that. But honestly, it lacks spirit. It's lacking something spiritual. And that being the case, it really leaves a door open uh, for misuse. Think about this, Wayne. It's, you know, you laid all that out, but now out on top of it, the computer remembers every Go game that it's been in front of. But you see, the thing about Go is the Go masters were supposedly cultivating a philosophical, spiritual edge to their game. And this was part of the commiseration on the tale of beating Go with a computer because that clearly doesn't play into it. Um, and, well, there's a whole other side to this, but we've got so much to go through. You want to add anything here, Jason, or push? Now let's keep going. In 2014, the $1 million Palo Alto Longevity Prize is announced to fund research into curing aging. Here they go again. From their website... The Palo Alto Prize is a newly established Silicon Valley-based initiative of the Race Against Time Foundation. The mission of the Palo Alto Prize is to encourage collaboration, foster innovation, and build a community to address the underlying causes of aging. In addition to the $1 million of cash prizes, the Palo Alto Prize is also working with a number of angel investors, venture capital firms, corporate venture arms, institutions, and private foundations to provide access to additional capital to the teams during the competition. While the Palo Alto Prize will help facilitate introductions, all transactions and due diligence will be done privately between the teams and potential investors and philanthropists. Hear language like this, you know, one thing certainly, if they get to their little goal to begin to extend human life, it will be a commodity and it will be the same as it ever was. I'll give you an example. There's a royal train in Britain that costs, I forget how much. Each time they use the train, it's like thousands and thousands of dollars, even for the most simplest move because of the staff, the maintenance, and everything else. It's an old school luxury train. But my point here is without the royals, there is no train. Now, in that case, the idea is that the taxpayers are paying for it, although we all know something about places like the Vatican and the royals that undermines their idea that they have no power and they're just figureheads. But how is that any different? Say they come up with a way to add 50 years or something to someone's lifetime. First of all, at some point, it'll be there for a price, which automatically cuts down to very few people. Look at space travel. They're faking space travel. But what are all these fake tickets going for? They're going for only money the rich and the famous could pay for, which keeps it insider baseball and it keeps it going along. But as Jason constantly picks out, the idea of curing aging flies in the face of what we know to be philosophically true as we have been taught by alchemy about living things. And I will refer back to a thing I learned from supposedly the Buddha, who or whatever that was matters not to me. The ideas are what matter. When the Buddha found out people died, he said, I can't live like this anymore. I've got a palace for each month of the year, all the women I want, the best food in the want. But I just found out in my 20s or 30s, whatever it was, that everyone I know is going to die and I'm going to die because his father had hid it from him, the king. And that's how he supposedly sets out on his course of the Buddha. But the man who tells him, tells him the ancient wisdom that follows thusly, every living thing will be sick at least one time in their life, and they will experience death. And when we set aside these wisdom views of what it means to be alive, we end up with where we're heading here. And I don't know how anyone ever believes that with angel investors and all this other nonsense, that this will ever be available to anyone. And by the way, would you want it? 
if someone could put a computer chip in you somewhere and give you another 25 years, are you wanting to play? Wayne? Well, beyond that, it comes down to longevity or immortality. What are they looking for here? And they're always pushing the longevity towards immortality. Uh, so with that being the case, uh, they're pushing for uh, essentially the, the immortality aspect of this. And this would be achieved according to them by uh, being able to upload your consciousness into a machine. And uh, I don't see that as being something feasible because once again, you're lacking that component of spirit. And that being the case, that's an essential part about who and what we are. Uh, so with that being said, they're always talking about uh, these investors, philanthropists, all these big money names and people. Well, let's let's put it this way. They claim to be philanthropists and they, they do this for the quote unquote greater good. Uh, but it's just benefiting themselves, essentially, is what it comes down to. Because like uh, Crow had said, it's going to be a commodity that could only be afforded by some of the most wealthy, much like this whole, uh, you know, space nonsense that's going on now, flying to the edge of space in their rocket ships and stuff like that. Uh, it's it's going to be the same type of thing. It'll only be the the wealthy and famous who are allowed into this little club if if they do get this to actually work, where they could extend their lifespans. And I don't see that ever turning into something like an immortality, like they talk about a physical immortality, because that's not something that happens in the natural realm here. And it's not something that will stand the test of time. Now, could they possibly extend their lifespans through the use of technologies? Maybe. Uh, but uh, I would venture to say, I think the immortality aspect of it is a pipe dream. Uh, when it comes down to it. So uh, that's what they're pushing for, though. The immortality idea only exists for human beings. But since Jason knows like a thousand percent more than I do about popular culture, I'm reasonably sure, Jason, that sometime in the 2000s, there was a movie where the idea was you could buy new organs, but they if you couldn't do your payments, they'd come take your liver back. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, is that the one with Ewan McGregor? don't recall, um, but I think there's a movie that's already set these ideas on the table about, yeah, sure, we can fix all these ailments. We have all these livers that we got in a horrendous way you don't know want to know about, um, but guess what? You missed your payment. There's a dude literally coming to shoot you with a dart and then pull this liver out and leave you there. Um, it's a very stark reality that heads down this road, and the only reason I bring up such a horrific thing is because this is the path we tread when we no longer value the creation and the idea of the spirit, our breath. This is why they're blocking it. My mom wants to watch the Olympics all day because she can't get out of her chair now, um, and I'm actually watching athletes uh, play blocking their spirit, and th there's a strategy behind all this. And the strategy is to bolster the death-based systems and to minimize our connection to life. Well, if they're wearing masks while they're doing it, they're going to have decreased performance. It's ridiculous. I don't, I don't really watch it anymore. I will say at least the colors aren't so offensive as they were the last time I saw whatever it was. It's been a while, but um, you know they're playing volleyball. And it's so ridiculous as to be laughable because like, there's nobody in these places watching the things that I've seen and like every other person will be without a mask. So let's get it straight here. Are people infecting each other or are they not? Um, and this erodes the very basic tenets of what it means to be alive and appreciate and understand what it means to be alive. And I shouldn't say understand to comprehend what it means to be alive. And this gift that is above all other gifts that we are granted at our creation. And finishing in 2014, Elon Musk tells Aeon Magazine, there will be people living on Mars by 2040. Google CEO Larry Page goes on to tell TED conference attendees that he would prefer to leave his fortune to Elon Musk than donate it to charity in order to ensure that people will get to Mars. All right. Um, I am not a betting man, but Mr. Elon Musk, my name is Crow, and I'll bet you let's say $3,000, and I don't bet that you never take a living being from the place we call Earth and put them on the place we call Mars, which is not to say there may or may not be life um, in some form, but the idea that a so-called Earthling is going there is laughable. And this is the kick the can game, and this is the misappropriation of our 
our ability to view how and where we exist. That's what this entire game is from my point of view. And I can't stress that enough. This is based on all my telescope work, <clears throat> all the work of others and the things that I observed and reasonably looked at. But here's the thing about breaking away from mainstream. When you quit looking at the news and caring about which damn movie is coming out next and concentrate on facets of life, there is an experiential knowing that comes to you and you get a view that can't be had as far as I know in any other way. And this is a put up. And if it is a put up, why are they doing the put up? And it's all about our minds. What would you add, Wayne? I would add that uh, I, I think it's very telling that they are concentrating so much on the Mars idea or the Mars archetype right now. Uh, so there's something uh, more esoteric going on with that. Uh, they're trying to uh, pull people's minds toward this Mars type idea. And how, how does that play out in society? Well, Mars is associated with wars and conflicts and things of that nature. So I think they're you, you know using this as a divisive tool for society, this, this whole idea. And you see that echoed right now in what they're doing with all this space nonsense. These rich people, these ultra-rich billionaires are flying to space. And, uh, you know, that the rest of us, the normal folks, can't do that. It's divisive, see? So it, it's invoking this Mars archetype uh, to divide. And uh, they always, as far as, like, actually physically you know, flying somebody to the moon or Mars and living on another world or something like that. Well, we know that's nonsense, first of all. But second of all, the, the whole game they play with that is kick the can down the road. They've been doing this since the inception of NASA, kick the can down the road. And, uh, you know, why, why is it if, if we're going to be able to actually have people living on Mars by the year 2040, well, how is it that we have never been back to the moon since 1972? Uh, and why do we not have a base on the moon and all this other stuff? It's much closer than Mars, according to the mainstream narrative that they give us. So why would they not uh, try to establish uh, a colony there first rather than go to Mars and um, when you look at the time frame here, it's only 19 years from now. He's talking about people living on Mars. I don't see it happening, man. I, I really don't because, uh, you know, first of all, like I said, we, we know it's nonsensical on the face of it. And uh, second of all, if they haven't been back to the moon, according to their own uh, information that they give us since 1972 and have not established a base or a colony there, uh, how is it logical to progress and just go straight to Mars next? It doesn't add up when you, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, none of it adds up. And that's a pipe dream once again. And it's, it's not going to happen. I will say uncategorically, it's not going to happen. There will not be people living on Mars in 2040. End of story. From my point of view, it can't be done. Uh, we got so many bullet points. We're going to have to try it to be a little more brisk with our responses. But Wayne, if I'm not mistaken, Many years ago, you sent me, I think it was a Werner von Braun sci-fi kind of thing. I don't remember who authored it about Mars and the chief character was Elon. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, that was, uh, it was Werner von Braun. Uh, he wrote a book. Uh, it was about uh, establishing a Mars colony or something. And the leader of that Mars colony, his title was Elon. So, and that was in 1950s. I think he wrote that. So. What more do we need here? And as you began to accurately say, part of this mind bender is the archetypal ideas that are associated with Mars, right? So as we go through these, we should try at least to tie into ancient myth, guys. Uh, maybe we can bump into the CNN idea, but to have done all this transhumanism from the perspective of how they tie, tie to the anchor point that is Greek and Roman myth. I mean, I know we didn't prep for it. Let's try to keep it in mind. In 2015, Elon Musk donates $10 million to the Future of Life Institute to invest in research for the creation of friendly AI. From their website, we have technology to thank for all the ways in which today is better than the Stone Age, and technology is likely to keep improving at an accelerating pace. We are a charity and outreach organization working to ensure that tomorrow's most powerful technologies are beneficial for humanity. With less powerful technologies, such as fire, we learn to minimize risks largely by learning from mistakes. With more powerful technologies, such as nuclear weapons, synthetic biology, and future strong artificial intelligence, 
Planning ahead is a better strategy than learning from mistakes. So we support research and other efforts aimed at avoiding problems in the first place. We are currently focusing on keeping artificial intelligence beneficial, and we are also exploring ways of reducing risks from nuclear weapons and biotechnology. FLI is based in the Boston area and welcomes the participation of scientists, students, philanthropists, and others nearby and around the world. I'm noticing a trend here. They're starting to get concerned about what artificial intelligence might become in the near future. Well, you hit it on the head when you said, oh, we're going to go for the creation of friendly AI. If there's ever a distinction between friendly and unfriendly, what do you think is going to happen there? Um, what if we could create a friendly or an unfriendly gun? So when we're just target shooting, you got a friendly gun. When we're at war, is that a friendly gun? And is there anything that ever prevented the idea of the powers that be using them? So the idea of friendly AI is laughable. But when he goes on to say, um, with more powerful technologies such as nuclear weapons, which don't exist as described, synthetic biology, which is limited at best in nature, and then the future of strong artificial intelligence, planning ahead is important. No, the only part of that that seems like it's feasible on a level that matters right now is artificial intelligence and intelligence, and it gives you a damn time machine. So don't come talking to us about strategy and planning because you ain't planning nothing. You're running data. But to get back to the main open, we have technology to thank for all the ways in which today is better than the Stone Age. That is bald-faced nonsense. Um, so many of the things that we used to appreciate in the analog age have been completely obliterated by technology to the simple example of, I want to pick up the phone and call a business, but I can't get a human being. Or I want to have a telephone with having robots call me all day. So these ideas that technology is this grand greatest thing ever, it's just a false dichotomy. Wayne? Yeah, I mean, technology, it's a useful tool and it does have some good uses. But at the same token, uh, what you're saying is true. Uh, it, it comes to a point where we just have to take a step back and say, hey, where, where do we draw the line here? Um, it, it becomes invasive uh, to people. And then you have that whole idea of they want to build a friendly AI as opposed to an unfriendly one. And, and uh, the allegory you made there with the gun concept it's, it's the same thing. It's a tool. It could be used either way. And uh, you're not going to prevent one or the other, uh, depending on whose hands it's in or who's actually controlling it. Uh, so that being the case, I mean, uh, saying we want to make a friendly AI. Well, yeah, I mean, I understand where you're coming from with that. But uh, all these technologies are what they call dual use. So they look at the militaristic application of them as well as civilian uses for it. So that being the case, it, it has, I'm sure, already been weaponized by the military industrial complex, and uh, they know all the ways to weaponize it and use it in a dual use capacity. So with that being said, um, it, there is that distinction that they're trying to make here, but this is just justification for doing what they know is ethically and morally wrong. And that's what it always boils down to when you have these people discussing ethical concepts like that. Well, should we go ahead and do this? Well, if we make it a friendly AI, sure. Well, well see, that's the problem, though. Uh, there's no way to really differentiate between for, like friendly and unfriendly. Like friendly to whom exactly? That, that's the whole concept there. Uh, who will it be friendly towards? It's not going to be friendly towards everybody. Uh, so it's it's a false dichotomy that they're pushing there. Well, th think of the framework, Wayne. Why wouldn't the basic, you know, whatever you want to call it, we, we have an operating system, we have the hardware, everyone gets the basic idea, but why wouldn't it be written into the foundational operating systems um, that it has to be friendly AI, that these negative things can't ever parse, you know, it, this is technology that can be made to be whatever it is, and it would be so simple to do this. And the reason it won't be is because the U.S. government's going to say, well, those damn Chinese, man, they don't, they don't abide by the rules. They're going to get all this advantage from doing the wrong thing. We better do the wrong thing. I'm just saying. Right. And that's exactly why that dual use aspect of it comes into play, because they, they are always, always, first and foremost, going to figure out how can this new technology be weaponized and used it for an advantage? And that's exactly the whole point there, because their their whole logic behind it is, well, if we don't do it, somebody else is going to and we need to get the jump on it. And that's wherein it creates this false dichotomy. Well, let's the three of us agree before Jason moves on here that if we live long enough, we'll do the Butlerian Jihad episode. It's definitely one that's got to be done, I think. Well, you know, we should be able to live long enough. I mean, they're doing all these life extension technologies, right? 
Oh, I'm sure I'm going to get an extra 50 or 60 years, and I'm not even that rich. Yeah, right. In 2015, transhumanist Zoltan Istvan launches a presidential bid on the transhumanist party. Although he didn't get all that far, he continues working on political campaigns to this day. The only thing I need to say here is woe to us if this ever becomes important on any level. Um, I would imagine, too, it means the left and right wings of the eagle have to fall off so they can start building robot wings to replace them. And that's 100% correct right there. I mean, even though this transhumanist party hasn't had much impact as of yet, uh, it's, it's definitely a proponent of these things, and it exists, and it has politicized this agenda. And we know what happens when agendas become politicized, don't we? Normalization, Wayne, I think is what you're going for. These shocking things are shocking until we've seen a thousand movies that make them mainstream, seen that, done that. And then before long, a corporation claims to have done what was once shocking. And as I have said so many times, the first time I ever saw anything from you was a PDF from Jason on your first book. And I saw you covered the Overton window and I knew right there and then. Anyhow, Jason. In 2018, the Brain Preservation Foundation announces the Large Mammal Brain Preservation Prize has been won by 21st Century Medicine, demonstrating destructive uploading as theoretically viable for revival. The prize required the successful preservation of synaptic connectivity across an entire pig brain in a manner compatible with centuries-long storage. Um, I... I mean, (laughs) this is the reason for books like The Twilight Language. I think it's that one where he begins to point. Remember the one where they put an ear on a mouse and there was these other things put in pigs so that if they were ever used and have been on people, uh, you basically have a pig man. Does anyone remember the, the Seinfeld where they're making fun of Kramer saw a pig man? Um, this is, it's not comedy, man. This is the death-based kind of degradation of life in mainstream reporting. It's sickening. Yeah, and it's not, uh, I, I would say it's not a coincidence that, uh, you know, Elon Musk gave his demonstration of his Neuralink product last year. And what animal did he use? Well, a pig. So he had his Neuralink thing hooked up to a pig brain as well. But what this is talking about here, it says they've demonstrated that, uh, destructive uploading is theoretically viable for revival. What does that mean, destructive uploading? Well, this is, uh, I think we had discussed on uh, the previous transhumanism episode here, uh, talking about that whole brain emulation roadmap thing. What they're talking about is using ubiquitous uh, sensors to uh, scan uh, the brain. And in the process, though, it destroys the the neurons of the brain and will replace it with an artificial uh, replicate of that said neuron. So this is what they're talking about. They're talking about the process of scanning the brain and the function of the brain actually destroys the brain physically, but they've recorded the data. So they see this as being feasible for, uh, they could re-upload this data into a machine that does a similar thing as the pig brain here. So that's kind of what they're talking about here. They're saying it's it's theoretically possible that they've actually achieved that. So, I mean, they, they've actually killed the pigs in this process, according to what they're saying here. Uh, so that's the thing. They're, they're talking about, uh, well, we could scan a brain, but in the process, the brain's destroyed. Uh, but, you know, that makes it possible to revive the brain later because we have all the data. Uh, now, how does that add up exactly? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, like, once again, they're, they're lacking something here in this whole process. They, they view this in the purely hyper-physical way or the extreme, everything's physical, everything's material, the hyper-materialist viewpoint that they, they put on so much of this stuff. So that, that's one of the problems uh, with this whole concept. Well, there's, you know, what's that old saying? You can judge and rank a society by how it treats its animals. But you see, to me, it goes deeper than that. We are always shouting from the rooftops that we're being infringed on by a death-based society. So everything you just said is true. If we want to go a little further into the basement, we want to do something for life. So we're going to kill all this life to do it. And it shows you the intent. And if there is a thing called karma, how do you ever shed it? And by the way, I recently did a post because people are talking about bridges and um, overpasses and all these things that apparently have all this death attached to them much higher um, because they're assaulting the throughways of nature, almost like a death sacrifice is required. Um, The point I would make is I wrote, what do you think a slaughterhouse is doing? 
As a matter of fact, American gods that show on TV, they flat out admit it. Do you think all the death in a slaughterhouse is going uncollected? And so what do you think is going on here in this medical claim of uploading destructive whatever in the hell? It's, it's all quite a bit too much for me. It's a nightmare. Next, let's talk about quantum supremacy. In quantum computing, quantum supremacy, or quantum advantage, is the goal of demonstrating that a programmable quantum device can solve a problem that no classical computer can solve in any feasible amount of time, irrespective of the usefulness of the problem. A notable property of quantum supremacy is that it can be feasibly achieved by near-term quantum computers, since it does not require a quantum computer to perform any useful task or use high-quality quantum error correction, both of which are long-term goals. Consequently, researchers view quantum supremacy as primarily a scientific goal, with relatively little immediate bearing on the future commercial viability of quantum computing. Because of this goal, building a quantum computer that could perform a task that no other existing computer feasibly can, can become more difficult if classical computers or simulation algorithms improve. Quantum supremacy may be temporarily or repeatedly achieved, placing claims of achieving quantum supremacy under significant scrutiny. Google claims to have achieved quantum supremacy in October of 2019, but IBM called poppycock on them. I'll call poppycock on this whole nonsense. Hey, you dudes in the white lab coach, you think we're stupid? Not all of us are. So you're telling me if you got quantum supremacy, you would have a device that could compute something that no other computer given endless time could. That is the ultimate encryption, if nothing else. But if you want to take it into the real world, that also means problems that will never be solved are suddenly solvable. So it is laughable to act like it's just a scientific In other words, if someone had quantum supremacy, as it is described here, would they go ahead and make sure the Chinese government has the same ability or anyone else in the world, or for that matter, any other lab in the world? And by the way, since it's a corporation and there's shareholders and you see where this goes, it is complete and utter nonsense. And it's all theoretical. (laughs) I mean, and that's the whole basis there. It's theoretical, uh, which means it doesn't really have a solid ground to stand upon. Uh, Like you said, uh, if if they do have this quote unquote quantum supremacy, that does mean that they could allegedly solve any problem, even problems that uh, were not previously solvable by mankind. Uh, And uh, I, I would like to call poppycock on that, because if that's the case, wouldn't they be able to solve the problem of aging by now? If this machine has achieved this supremacy, like they say, and I think just recently, just earlier this year, uh, some Chinese company came out and said that they achieved quantum supremacy now over both IBM and the other competitors here. So it's all nonsensical. It's all just a lot of uh, patting ourselves on the back kind of thing for many of these science research firms. And by the way, all the technology they have was given to them as we researched down. Basically, the majority of China Tech, their version of Facebook, Tencent, Alibaba, and whatever the hell the other one is, was given to them at a picnic in Silicon Valley in 1997, which further calls poppycock on stating that this works in any logical or sane way. This is about something else. And that if that was a possible goal to achieve, it would be basically the real nuclear weapon, the ultimate weapon. In 2020, Elon Musk's neurotechnology startup company Neuralink, initially launched in 2016, sought U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval to begin clinical trials in 2020 for their brain-machine interface. The company expected this technology to be able to make up for lost sections of the brain following a stroke or an accident, for example. (laughs) Well, I guess we all know basically what the FDA is about at this point. If I wanted to take one in-your-face example that proves they have no concern for living men or women, I would use the opioid addiction idea. I recently heard, and I don't know, it's Purdue. I forget the name of the company that's supposedly going to be the fall guy for OxyContin, which isn't even... The bulk of the problem. It was across the board abuse for something like three decades of handing out drugs like they were candy. Um, as an example, now my mother's in severe pain the other day and they said, did you give her Tylenol? I said, no, I did not. They said, then take her home and buy Tylenol. At which point I had pretty much sealed the deal that I will deal with this. I know what's right. These people no longer do. 
but uh, so you're going to reference the FDA as if that's approval on some official level that matters. I'm here to tell you the FDA is watching the entire world be inoculated right now. And there are many of us who have pretty grave concerns about what that inoculation is actually doing. Yeah, um, that that's another important facet of this whole thing here. Uh, the FDA, uh, let's let's put it this way: they're they're not your friends. Uh, they allow things uh, to pass uh, through their approval processes and stuff like that that have no place, uh, you know, as being used as a commodity for society and that kind of thing. So it's all about money when it comes down to the FDA. Uh, who, whose hand is, you know, getting greased and uh, whose wallet is benefiting from this. It's a revolving door system, uh, just like uh, the CDC and some of these other agencies, too. It's a revolving door of the who's who and the uh, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, you, they come in, they do their time serving as the, you know, the director or whatever, make these approvals and stuff like that. And then they get rewarded with a nice CEO position at one of these major pharmaceutical companies later and retire with a hefty uh, retirement plan and uh, that kind of thing and a good pension and stuff like that. So they they have their their players in place where they need to be. And the FDA they're not doing us any favors, honestly. It's it's a matter of uh, yeah, they've also been caught turning down things that really shouldn't be of concern. Like you can't buy vitamin B17 here in the U.S. anymore, uh, which is pretty much found in apricot pits uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of people claim uh, that this this has anti-cancer type properties. But the FB, FDA said, oh, that's that's dangerous. That's harmful to tell people that. So we're going to ban the sale of this natural substance now. Uh, so like that kind of stuff, it flies in the face of what they're supposed to uh, represent. Uh, so if that's the case, uh, going back to uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink technology here, uh, what you can see is they're they're trying to uh, push this kind of a, a strategy here, this BCI, the brain-computer interface technology, as being a viable treatment option for many of these different diseases and stuff like that. And that's the route they're going to go. They're, they're, they always will tout the medical benefit of something like this, but uh, what they have in mind for it is not really truly beneficial to human beings. Well, Jason, as we take the fall, why don't you take us to September? In September of 2020, D-Wave Systems, the company that was the first to sell a commercial quantum computer, unveiled its newest and most powerful model to date. The company says that the new machine has 5,000 qubits, the basic information processing unit in a quantum computer, and that each of these qubits is connected to 15 others. This makes the machine, which they are calling the D-Wave Advantage, many times more powerful than the company's previous quantum computer, introduced in 2016, which had 2,000 qubits, each of which was connected to six others. All right, so we're stupid. I get it. You think we're all stupid because you're going to say stuff like this. I watched the whole digital onset use the same idea with what's the fastest computer. Here's this law that tells you how quick we can make a computer chip double its power. So you're basically being told if you buy this very expensive computer now, by this time next year, there's going to be one that's double and ideas like this. But let's ask the simple question. So you're telling me you got it and the qubits connect to 15 others. So how soon can you connect to 60 or 100 if any of that's true? But what's got me about this now, as I read this point, is D-Wave. You're using a D there. And most of the time when we see the idea of four in modern media and branding, there's a death idea. If you double that quite often, it's the death, uh, death doors idea. But what struck me is I realized we've all got computers. We've got programmers. We could easily take a dictionary and write a program to say, Mr. Computer, please tell me of all the D words in the English language, how many of them have a positive connotation and how many of them have a negative connotation. And while that is not the be all and end all for the letter D per se, it is a hell of a good barometer for how the letter D is used by the people who steer our society. And I know that's slightly off track, but that's what struck me. I'm pretty sure uh, D wave early on uh, when they were first uh, manufacturing some of these quantum computers back in the day, uh, I'm pretty sure they had said and predicted that by the time they would be able to uh, make a 5,000 qubit uh, uh, quantum computer, 
that computer would be capable of breaking all encryption. So encryption would be a thing of the past if what they're telling us is true with this. Uh, So, you know, that being the case, no form of encryption is safe. And that would include things like uh, your your Bitcoin. (laughs) So if that's the case, uh, you you know, this whole concept of the the digital currency and these cryptocurrencies and stuff like that, that's not a safe venture anymore if what they're telling us with this thing is true. I, I got a hell of an example here, Wayne, which illustrates the importance and power of actual life versus these dead machines. Go back to the story of the wind talkers in World War II. Oh, all this encryption keeps getting broke and they got this new Enigma machine and there's this and there's that and no encryption is safe. So we're going to do a thing that can't possibly be decrypted. We're going to get these Navajo Indians and we're going to get one of them on each side of a radio and they're going to speak in their native dialect and it is physically impossible for anyone to break that encryption. You know why? Because it's not encryption. It's human human communication built by living beings with all that comes with that. And I think that one example that just struck me may be such a potent way to kind of push back on all this nonsense. And for the last point in the setup for hour two, Ray Kurzweil has many predictions for the future, often made in his books, but also during various lectures. The following points that we will be getting to in hour two are a number of things that he says are coming, along with some other transhumanist futurist points as well. So I guess I'll go this way. The main underscoring thing that I consider in all this push for transhumanism is, first of all, they're not as far down the line as they're acting like they are. So what's actually going on? What's actually going on is what I put on every episode image. They're alchemically changing the living minds in this world into a fantasy-based system, because when you go to fantasy, then anything can be inserted. You want them to believe about the most outlandish thing. Once you're living in fantasy, it's not that hard. All they got to do is normalize it. For that matter, just open up the Overton window, and it will not be long before this thing that was completely unacceptable will be begged for, paid for, demanded. And that's what we're talking about here. The idea that a human being is alive, the idea that we are granted the divine spark at our creation, the idea that we get the gift of spirit when we come through the birth canal and take that first breath and the sky clock as the arbiter playing the music that we will all dance to invests that new life with its unique everything, possibilities, potentialities. We could go down the line. All of that begins to be less a part of what it means to be alive when the death gets too big a foothold. And to me, the entirety of technology has this issue. But in particular, what we're covering here, this is the overarching shadow that we're all going to have to face down if things don't change. And by the way, there could be an act of God tomorrow. Who knows where lightning's going to strike? We can only hope, right, Wayne? to uh, bring about this transhumanist philosophy. And it's done through, so, uh, through the use of uh, what we would call myth or the archetype of myth. And uh, perhaps we should lead off hour two uh, going into that because I know we wanted to talk about that here today. Well said. And we'll see what it is exactly they're doing and how they're leveraging these ideas to try to bring about this transhumanist thing that they want. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, it is something uh, where we have to wake up to this idea and understand what it is that they're doing to try to achieve these ends and understand that there's more to it than just the physical nuts and bolts that they try to present to us in this world, uh, this hyper-materialist viewpoint. This is not all there is, folks. This physical world, this physical realm we live in isn't all there is. And they know other ways to try to to leverage ideas to try to bring to fruition this wholly artificial thing in this physical realm that they could control. But at the end of the day, uh, nature takes precedent and always self-corrects. So that being said, I I think we could probably leave off there for hour one. I think so, but I'll, I'll just put one more point here. If I had children right now that I had to deal with educating, I can certainly guarantee you that they would much exposure to Greek myth 
and then the counterpart of Roman myth for the simple reality that it's all true. Not only is it true, even if you don't like the narrative, has it not only happened in our world, it will happen in our world again. It's basically a description of what will happen to lifetimes of men and women in the course of an existence. But what's more is it's an archetype, as Wayne pushed at. And once you get that haunted time stamp, I don't know how else to put it, that can be leveraged on. And again, that is opened up in the twilight language. Well, why did this thing happen here? And by the way, this thing happened in a location where there's been nothing but death and misery for decades, or there was a massacre here. These haunted timestamps exist in really bad ways and positive ways. And the archetype in a way I think of in this manner. And uh, Jason, you want to add anything about what we're about to do in hour two? Well, these future predictions are quite interesting and some of them are downright scary and uh if some of this stuff really does get unleashed they might be right at least about some of it yeah you know now i'm thinking about what we just covered last time we record with roko's basilisk even the name of that is trying to pry your mind back to myth and fantasy but anyhow there it is there is our one with Wayne Crow and Jason for episode 341. Uh, I hope you'll join us all over at crow777radio.com. By the way, the new website is almost totally shook out. Bugs and all these other things. I will be adding all kinds of functionality. And right now, as it stands, we have never raised the price since the one time we had to. And we're delivering twice the content. And let me tell you something. The censorship heat is on and the just operating is a constant just work at this point, but it doesn't matter. We've chosen our road and we're going to do what we do because we think it's important. With that, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing. Oh.